There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and I'm going to keep this introduction short and sweet because we've got a long episode and a long vertical journey to make this week up the monument. Thanks to people who've been making contact to help us put together an episode all about uh, the London taxi cab. Liam Laws, a special thanks to you. Some really excellent ideas there. Two notes about this week's episode. One, Mars bars are made mention of, but in the end, no Mars bar was injured in the making of this recording, which is why you'll find we don't talk about it at the end. And secondly, there's a a buzzing noise that pervades certain sections of the show. I think I've worked out what it was. It was every time we were at the foot of the monument on the paving there. And uh, for me, that is conclusive proof that there is uh, something giant and electrical underneath the monument. I presume it's uh, some sort of secret military complex, an enormous radar facility of some sort. Perhaps the monument itself is the pointy bit of a vast satellite dish. As you're about to hear, that wouldn't be entirely out of keeping with the spirit of its construction. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sounds you ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. Hey, baby, step out me. See the piece of the air, land in the sea. Some creep, some saw. Down the road, jam around the store. My heart aches for some far off place. Well, hello, hello. I got a very amusing email over the weekend. It was from a previous guest on the show, Secret London Runs, and they wrote to Londonist HQ, and they said, would anybody like to join in with a, was it a 10K or a 15K marathon that they're setting up? We'd particularly like to see N. Quentin Wolf in a pair of shorts running along. And if you heard that show, you can probably imagine the brevity and succinctness of my reply. So on today's show, well, I'm looking up at one of the tallest flights of stairs in town, I would guess. It's the monument, and <laughs> apparently I'm going to be climbing up it whilst eating a Mars bar. It's all very confusing. David Laird, hello. Hello, nice to meet you. How are you doing? Well, at the moment, I'm all right. Ah, fantastic, fantastic. Well, I'm sure you'll be fine once we get to the top as well. Are you? We'll take it, we'll take it quite slowly, I think. Take it quite slowly, or I will be anyway, so... I've come past this thing quite a few times. I don't think I've really appreciated it until the idea of climbing up it again which I haven't done since I was a kid, was mooted. I don't think I realised quite how tall it is. How tall is it? So you're looking at 202 feet of Portland stone to the top, or about 61 metres, 62 metres. 
We are here, and I'm not sure whether to call it just an anniversary or a recognition or a commemoration. Yeah, I think commemoration is definitely the right word. Um, of course, it's 350 years ago this year that the, the Great Fire of London took place, devastating the inner part of the city within the square mile. Um, but we're also here to a degree to celebrate uh, the structure of the monument coming into being. Uh, not only was it here to commemorate the loss in the Great Fire, but also to celebrate the rebuilding of the city after that devastation. Did this go up at the same time as the new St Paul's and all that stuff then? So it probably went up a little bit earlier than St Paul's. Uh, I know St Paul's took about three to four decades to complete and was towards the early part of the 18th century. The monument itself is actually, it wasn't constructed straight after the Great Fire, but its its work starts in 1671, six years to complete. So it's a little bit before St Paul's, but it's definitely the same team behind Sir Christopher Wren and Robert Hooke. And... Of course, as we look around us, we're standing in a small courtyard and surrounding us, of course, are modern buildings. And the taller of them, they probably go up about two-thirds, three-quarters of the height of the monument. So the built environment has crowded around the monument. Back then, this would have been visible from quite a long way off, presumably. Absolutely. So what Hook and Wren were really trying to do with the design in the monument was to create a structure that could be seen at a great distance, but also that could be appreciated up close as that perpetual reminder to the Great Fire of London. So absolutely, it was intended to be seen from a distance. But at the same time, some of the buildings that surround the monument to this day do give you an idea of some of the heights that you would have seen in the structures within London uh, in 1666. Is that right? I think they seem enormous, far too big for the time, surely. Well, what you find is you did have structures going up, maybe sort of seven, eight, possibly even nine feet. And in the summer of 1666, the big difference that you have is of course every building is, is made of wood part of the layout of the city the buildings itself they were actually built back on the same layout and the difference being with the, the designs is you maybe had similar heights but of course you don't have that jettying of wood at the top that was one of the causes for the rapid spread of the fire back in 1666 well, that's interesting what you're saying about them being on the same footprint then because I know for a lot of the cities certainly some of the residential stuff that wasn't the case at all we lost a lot of those little alleyways but you're saying around here it was better preserved? Well, I mean, what you find with the Great Fire of London is, of course, almost 80% of the city is, is devastated, is, is completely flattened. Uh, within the ruins you actually have what was known as London Rockets, which was this um, very sort of unique flower that began to spring up out of the ground. But one of the one of the big problems that the Parliament, but also the uh, civil administration found within the city is that they had these layouts of the city, but there was no finance to actually redesign exactly how the city should look. So what you find is, uh, after 16 when the Rebuilding Act of London comes in, we have a number of surveys are carried out. And this is really where we were introduced to the the character of Hook. Uh, Land surveys are conducted so that people can rebuild on the land that was previously theirs. So what you find is whilst the streets stay the same, that difference in in building style starts to pop up. The use of stone after this great conflagration seems like too much of a coincidence. This was designed to be fireproof, right? Absolutely. Um, Now, I mean, in London, it's actually going back to maybe even the 14th century, they were trying to encourage the use of stone out of well exactly what happens with the great fire but absolutely so so you're, you're talking about needing uh, stone structures so that the fire isn't going to spread in the same way yeah absolutely i've heard i'm not sure if it's a rumor it might just be a fact that the monument is not on the site where the fire started so yeah, definitely. Um, what we when we talked about earlier about the the height of the monument being two hundred and two feet to the top, uh, the story goes anyway that the monument, if you were to lie it down, 
it would actually reach the exact spot to where that um, character that every school child knows from learning about the Great Fire, Thomas Farriner's Bakery, stood on Pudding Lane. Now, there's different stories as to why they didn't originally build on that site. And we know that the diarist John Evelyn was keen for the monument to be built on that exact site. Uh, One story that uh, I've come across is that Farriner, after the Rebuilding Act, actually had his uh, land survey conducted a few weeks before the surveyors went in to look at building the monument on that site. So Farriner beat them to it. So that's possibly one of the reasons as to why we didn't build on the exact same site. Ah, you've just opened up a beautiful window into something that I've... I don't know why I've never wondered about it before. So I know that the fellow who burnt down the Houses of Parliament um, suffered no real consequence at all, and I believe even stayed in his job, having uh, set fire to one of the most important places in the country. Farriner was still a going concern then afterwards. He wasn't immediately uh, lynched or, or put away. Well, what you find is Farriner is not the, the individual who's really immediately blamed for the Great Fire. And really, what you find is that Farriner probably wasn't the problem with why the Great Fire spread so much. Of course, it's the cause. We only have six fatalities, or recorded fatalities, in the Great Fire, one of which is an unfortunate maid that works in the bakery itself. Um, but there's really two reasons as to why the Great Fire spread, and I like to think of it as a very British catastrophe, because what you find is it's the weather, and it is also, to a degree, an incompetent response from the authorities to actually stop the fire from spreading. We say the weather, and it was the wind, due to the direction of the wind pushing the fire through the city, uh, but also the, the mayor of the day, the Lord Mayor of London, made a, a rather profane comment as to uh, the fire's threat, and suggested that a lady could... Uh, relieve herself to put the fire out. So he wasn't taking it particularly seriously, the spread of the fire. This is while the fire's going. This is while the well, fire... it must be. Absolutely. So, uh, so uh, Bloodworth, the mayor, is, is really taking no action at all. And it's not until a few days into the crisis, after Samuel Pepys forces the monarch's hand, or at least encourages the monarch to take action, that you find his brother, James the Duke of York, actually gets on board and mobilises the the army to essentially start the firefighting. Bloodworth essentially raises the firefighting equivalent of a tickling stick and putting it out. So what on earth are we talking about here? Is it the case that this laid-back attitude was a result of them going through this sort of thing quite often and this, this one after a few days just happening to get even worse? Yeah, I mean, you know, fire is something that had had taken place before. Um, one of the one of the there's, there's surely a fire going for several days in the heart of the city. Why, why were alarm bells not raised uh, quite literally a little bit sooner? Do you know it's possibly one of the one of the mysteries with the fire there, and I don't know the exact answer as to why that would be. To a large degree, it just appears to be the uh, the opinion of the opinion of Bloodworth, and his response to it is just just one of absolute denial. Don't worry about it. That's it, absolutely. And how has he been? Because re- his name wasn't familiar to me. How has he been remembered by history generally? Well, I think he he's ultimately remembered as the the Lord Mayor who ran away from the Great Fire, and it's possibly as we make our way round, um, and anybody who's walked past the monument notices that there's a list of names on the uh, on the eastern side and the list of names there are the Lord Mayors. Bloodworth's name is, is not on that list and the Lord Mayors that you can actually see are those who were in office whilst the monument itself was being constructed so he is not remembered as a Lord Mayor fondly associated with the monument and certainly not with the story of the Great Fire. Well, that's interesting he's sort of been airbrushed out on some uh, interesting level. Don't you feel like if the same events were to go down now we would raise an enormous pointing finger uh, pointing at either Farina or Blood 
Wordsworth and that it would be much more personal. You, you would think so. Um, what you find after the Great Fire is there's, there's the great tension within the city of London with the, the Catholic community of the day, and ultimately they are the ones that pay the price in those initial years after the fire takes place. I suppose with a lot of these things, it's always about looking for somebody to blame. And at the time, rather than blaming the establishment, it's politically appropriate to blame the enemy of the day in a way, which is uh, seen as the Catholic community. So that's the context. A word probably is useful about the object itself because not everybody will have the luxury of walking past this on a regular basis. Could we have your sketch of the appearance of the thing? Yeah, so anybody who has walked past the monument or anybody who wants to appreciate the design, it's described as what's known as a Doric column, which means that it is a 20-sided column. It has a crown at the top, which is completed with the the golden orb that you can see today. And a Doric column supposedly doesn't have a, a pedestal at the bottom, which we don't quite have with the design of the monument as it's separate. But again, we are going to talk a little bit about the base as we make our way round. Now, in terms of the, the actual design and construction of the monument, it was Robert Hooke and Christopher Wren, two incredibly famous characters in the rebuilding of the city. Now, Wren and Hooke uh, had a wonderful partnership, and it seems to have been one that's viewed almost as a, a friendship in a way. Shortly after the Great Fire takes place, Hooke is appointed as one of the city surveyors, and indeed part of his role was actually looking after those land disputes to make sure that people weren't overstepping the mark in what was, uh, what was essentially their property to rebuild on. Wren is appointed as the uh, general surveyor, so essentially the, the king's man uh, in orchestrating the rebuilding of London. And you find that really over the next few decades, they go on to, to essentially rebuild a lot of that lost city. So during the Great Fire, you find we lose 85 churches, we lose the old medieval Cathedral of St Paul's, and about 130,000 people are made homeless. Over the next few decades, you find that Hook and Wren go on a mass rebuilding project. And one of the fantastic little quotes that I found is that Hook is described as having after the Great Fire of London this catastrophe which hits the city as one of the most productive and happiest times of his life. Now in terms of the monument itself there were three different designs in the original construction. The one that we are left with is one of the three. Originally though it was um, intended that it should be a tall column and I will just say now actually this is still believed to be the tallest stone column in the world freestanding column. One of the original designs was a phoenix at the top of the monument. So as London began to grow around the monument, you literally had the phoenix rising from the ashes. Uh, one of the slight alterations to that design was that a um, is that flames would have been coming out of the original structure. One of the, uh, the slightly more endearing stories, though, is of another design, which was largely what we have now, this tall stone structure. But instead of our urn having a 15-foot-high statue of King Charles II... One of the reasons that they they didn't go for that design in the end was, of course, the monument is here to remember the Great Fire of London. King Charles is the monarch at the time. Does he want, from a great distance and from close up, for his image to constantly be a reminder of uh, the devastation that went through the city. So in the end, we've chosen and moved on to the urn. One of the other reasons as to why we used the urn, though, was that it opens at the top, and therefore the uh, hidden use of the monument comes through that of being a telescope. Is this where we need to look a little bit more closely at Hook and his background? I think so, absolutely. Um, There's a glint in your eye that tells me you're about to subject me to a staircase. We are, we're a few minutes away from Oh, thank goodness, okay, I'm trying to mentally prepare Brace yourself, though. (laughs) (laughs) We're approaching the monument uh, gingerly. So we are, we're slowly walking towards the monument, but just before we do, um, just on the 
piazza, so just as you stand outside of the monument, we have a plaque dedicated to Robert Hooke. So we've talked a little bit about Robert Hooke's role with regards to the monument, but anybody who's walking through the city and has a look at this plaque can see some of his other uh, accreditations. So Hooke was the curator of experiments at the Royal Society. He was also seen as a a key geologist, a physiologist, an architect, an astronomer, and even a a natural philosopher as well. And this gives you a hint as to um, why Hooke and Rand were so keen to build the monument. And that is, essentially, anybody who walks past the structure is looking at a telescope. It struck me that one of the crossovers in terms of their characters, I know that Wren was very much a theoretician as well. Of course, he got his stuff made real, but he was very much about the ideas and the principles and the geometry behind how his work would work. Yep. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's why you find that there's so many exact measurements actually in the monument itself. Um, again, kind of coming on to that, we talked about the monument being 202 feet tall and that story about it being the exact distance on its side from where the Great Fire started. But actually, coming back to Hook being absolutely precise with his measurements, is this was the needed height to conduct not only um, his uh, um, sort of viewing of the stars, they wanted to use the telescope to be able to show the distance and change of the stars in the night sky and you needed that 202 feet it was absolutely exact and it was the same measurement that was used on earlier experiments by Hooke during the construction of, uh, of St Paul's Cathedral OK, well this makes me suspicious of whether the fire actually did start where they're claiming it started because if you lay that monument on its side it sort of overshoots the bottom of Pudding Lane by some distance I'd say doesn't it? Have you tried this out? Have you tried laying it down on its side? Do you know I've had a good go but you need to, <laughs> you probably need slightly bigger muscles than me. Um, one thing I will say though is Pudding Lane has actually shifted ever so slightly as well. Ah. So there is a, there is a um, and we're talking a couple of inches here so I'm not, I'm not sure it quite, quite helps the case in uh, toppling over the monument but um, Pudding Lane has ever so slightly shifted. Which way? That's the crucial Oh, crumbs now. Um, Has it come this way? Do you know, I'm going to guess and say it's gone slightly further to the east. Conclusive evidence. Bit of, yeah, bit of homework there Case for anybody. Yeah. Uh, well, so are we heading up then? I think what we'll do is we're going to quickly have so a I look. So i stop giving you introductions to go up there. Yeah, <laughs> so no, we, no, but you're keen, that's what we like. I'm not, we like you to be not remotely keen. Keen, <laughs> keen to climb. Fearful is what we'll have, we'll have. We'll have one more stop and then right. we'll make our way up. Around we go. What do you spend your time doing? So, yeah, so my role, I work with the, uh, the learning and community engagement team. Um, so we are all about essentially facilitating schools, families uh, and community visits at the monument. Um, but we're also based over at Tower Bridge as well. So, yeah, I mean, on a day-to-day basis, I tend to be taking school groups around who can age from the ages of, oh, I don't know, six or seven all the way up to 60 or 70. I it thought, just depends. I thought there was a certain avuncular characteristic in your delivery. We've got a big uh, landscape inscription here on the side. I don't know if this is what we're here for, though, but it says the monument, and it's uh, telling us about the history of the thing. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put your eyes just slightly further up there, actually. There, there can't be anything more interesting than the concessions rate. We are going to... Well, do you know what? Possibly the uh, out-of-date concessions rate. But anyway, we're going to have a, a look up to the top, up to the frieze, which was put here by Caius Gabriel Sibber. Uh, but just before we do, actually, I wonder, when you're here, you notice the sound of the city coming through a little bit more it's slightly noisier 
and what you can hear is the traffic coming over London Bridge. We well, what we can hear is the enormous building site over the other side of the road there, where a lot of those shop units and the tall buildings above them are being turned into something else. Do you know what's going on over there? You know, the only thing I know is that we had a lot of the city to rebuild after the Great Fire, and what you can probably hear is that they're still they're still doing it to this day. To, just bringing it to uh, completion. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, over the last 25 years, about 80% of the city has been rebuilt. So you're actually looking at, you know, sort of a different wave of it coming through. Um, but what we're actually standing on at the moment, uh, just on the west side of the monument is the main approach to what would have been the north-south pass. We look straight down Fish Hill, where Fish Hill meets Monument Street towards the River Thames and we can see the church of St Magnus the Martyr. Now, if we were to walk down that street in 1666 we actually would have walked straight onto Old London Bridge. So It just gives you another idea of exactly as you walk up the street, just how central the monument was. You you would have passed it, and again, that symbolism wouldn't have been lost on you. Um, But the symbols that we're actually going to look at here is the frieze of Caius Gabriel Sibber. Now, Sibber had worked very closely with uh, Wren and Hook, more so Wren in a way, on a number of different projects. He was the the son of a Danish cabinet maker, and unfortunately for Sibber, he was actually in jail at the time of the monument's construction, uh, debtor's prison. But a couple of his more famous works, anybody who's taken the trip out to Hampton Court on the east front and noticed some of Sibber's work there, he was uh, key to working on some of the inscriptions on the pedestalling above the top of St Paul's Cathedral. But what he's depicting here in the monument is a frieze which he was given one day out of debtor's prison to complete, or to, well, to at least start anyway. He was paid £600 for that one day, um, not enough to cover his debts, so at the end of the day he was put back into debtor's prison. What, what could you possibly be talking about? One day to... Uh, OK, just uh, just to give you an idea, listener, the piece here, we'll get exact measurements, uh, I'm sure, in just a moment, but I'll tell you it's about 15 foot by 15 foot. It's an incredibly detailed frieze we're seeing. Oh, what are we seeing? OK, I think I can see some Armada-era soldiers going along there. We can see... I recognise that moustache. That looks like Charles II. He is holding a scroll. I guess this maybe refers to the rebuilding of the city maybe there are architectural plans i don't know up top we have a female regal figure and her cherubic attendant i think that she probably represents a mythological character below us coming out of one of the the vents or drains or something like that is a creature breathing fire it looks like a medusa type character maybe the evils of pestilence or or of flame this is an ornate detailed work this is a big work Uh, one day no Absolutely not. It did not take one day to complete. Sibber was here. Really, he, he had one day to be here for the work, but again, it took about a year to complete. Well, what, do you, what did he do in that day? Well, do you know what? This is another Did one. he just point to that and say to somebody else, put a freeze up there? I believe what he did was, was conducting a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the original design, but no, it took, it took a team of people to actually complete the work. I mean, you are talking years for its construction to be, to be finalised. Very um, beautiful, isn't it? But just to put in um, a bit more context about that, I think your description is definitely going to beat mine. Um, but essentially what you're looking at here is King Charles II directing, essentially, the rebuilding of the City of London. So we've got a whole array of different characters, and anybody who walks past can pick a couple of them out, actually. The, the first one that we're going to start off 
with is actually this 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 lady who's looking slightly dishevelled um, in her garments. She's got her sword at a slightly awkward angle. Um, she's got lots of her at a slightly awkward angle. She she definitely does. She definitely does. And unfortunately for her, she's sitting under a mass of rubble, and we can see the dragon of the city of London below her. So this lady is actually representing the city. She's representing the city. It's fallen on its knees. You've got the ruins of the city below, and you've got that emblem in the dragon. Which in- which, which uh, unusually, as opposed to its usual position, holding aloft a shield or welcoming people into an area, it's uh, pretty much being trampled underfoot. Then. Absolutely, it's been completely trampled down, and the city is looking dishevelled in the in this image. Now, just to put in a little bit of context with with Charles II, um, everybody or a lot of people know about his his famous mistress Nell Gwynne. Now, supposedly, the design on the monument that Sibber has used, this was actually based on the character of Nell Gwynne, um, so the king's, the king's famous mistress there. Now, behind the city of London, we have a winged man with a beard, and he has his hands on the back of the, of, uh, of, um, uh, the female character of the city, and he's lifting her up. And this is essentially time. Time is lifting up the city. And one of the things that I find really endearing that I love about this image is behind time, you can see hands going up at the back, and these are the the residents of London who are lifting up their hands in celebration to the city being reborn. Um, If we swing over to the other side... They're raising their hands up, and if you look at the building above them, we can see flames coming out of the windows above them. But on the other side of the frieze, there's similar sorts of windows, but surrounded by scaffolding and workers. Absolutely. So what you're finding is on the left-hand side, it's all associated with the devastation of the city in those characters, but also the optimism of the city in that it's rising again and rebuilding. We've got the flames of the fire burning away, and again, four days that it burnt away um, until the 5th of uh, September, 1666. What you can see in the centre high above are these two characters representing peace but also representing plenty as well oh that's the cornucopia of course that's it absolutely now as we come over to the right hand side indeed right at the back we can see the workers beginning to rebuild the city we can see the scaffolding we can see the industry that's going into the structure itself being completed but what you can see are these other characters we have about six other characters and in the centre of them we of course have King Charles II He's done up in a uh, sort of Roman emperor. He's got an imperial feel about him. And what he is doing with his scroll is he's conducting the rebuilding of the city. And the different characters behind him, you can see just to his right-hand side, the other crown, this king, uh, well, is the Duke of York, uh, the future James II. Now, James, of course, is the one who conducts a lot of the relief during the Great Fire. But Charles is orchestrating not only James and the helping of the rebuilding, but those of liberty of science and of industry as well as the key components that are going to bring the city back to life. Under everybody's foot, you have this this fire-breathing character, a little bit sort of Medusa-like in a way. This is Envy, and it is the king stamping out Envy and the flourishing of the city once again. That was a way better description than mine. No, not (laughs) If you have a look at the characters in the top right, these are the workers. And I don't know if these might have been crafted by a different pair of hands than did the three-dimensional images of uh, Charles and his tribe there, but they're a little more two-dimensional. They're flatter, although they still protrude from the frieze itself. And you begin to see some of the characteristics of uh, 17th, 18th century cartoonery. 
Absolutely. This is one thing, coming back to sort of Sibber working on the design, you can, as you begin to look closely, see those slight differences in those slight different hands taking on the work itself. But yeah, absolutely. It definitely has that, has that feel about it. So just as we make our way in, one last thing to, uh, to point out is that the monument is a, a great way of navigating yourself about the city. If you're ever lost where you're heading towards, if you look just to the top, of the pedestal you can see that there are dragons now there's four dragons on the monument and the dragons of course representing the city of London but one nice little thing to remember is that the dragons that are on the west side have their heads bowed ever so slightly and that is out of respect facing west towards the monarch whereas if you were on the east side facing in towards the city they are raised just to make the differentiation between the royal and the civil so anyone who's ever lost uh, in the centre it's always a good place to come and get your bearings by the mm. monument. Now, if, if you're if you're drunk and trying to get home, uh, it's a bad idea to walk along telling people that the dragons told you to come this way. It's it's not it's not bad. It's not. Bad. I mean, it's an idea anyway. You will notice that um, there are plenty of pubs around the monument as well on each of the corners. So just in case you need the right way to go as you come out, <laughs> it's always a good uh, a good starting point, and that's that's certainly from experience as well. So there we go. <laughs> But yeah, I think it's probably time that we made our way in. Right, and we're going to do an experiment in the spirit of Hook. So we've been talking about some of the different experiments that um, that take place here at the monument. We've got the barometer experiments, we've got the pressure experiments, pendulum experiments, even the telescope. The monument is actually believed to be London's oldest paying visitor uh, attraction. Um, and one of the things that we like to say to people is that, well, and it's absolute fact here... The monument is, well, we, we like to think of it as being London's oldest paying tourist attraction. Um, going right back to the days of Nicholas Olney, who was the original keeper of the monument when it opened. And one of the experiments that, that we like to conduct here is that it supposedly takes up to the top 311 steps. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns and all the way down again the same calorie intake as a Mars bar so we're going to 
have ourselves a Mars bar as we make our way up the stairs. If you come down via the steps. If you come down via the steps. Uh, to be honest, your options are pretty limited um, unless you uh, come down via the steps. But just while we wait for this queue to go down, actually, one of the um, one of the great stories that's associated with the monument, um, and where it can gets this ever so slight reputation as having a bit of an eccentric history, uh, appeared in a publication. 1730, the Weekly Journal published a story about a, a nimble-footed man who supposedly was at the, the Baptist Head Tavern, which is actually a fair bit away over by the Old Bailey, mm. and he was given three minutes as a bet to make his way to the top of the monument and back down again, and he managed to complete it two and a half minutes and two seconds, running all the way down the stairs to the sound of, I'm coming, sir, I'm coming. I'm not quite sure that that's really uh, what we need to, uh, to gauge our own claim <laughs> on the way back down. Just wondering how you, how you go about verifying that um, well again it's, it's it's the media so you know we'll, t- we'll take every word that they say with a, a slight pinch of salt that's but, interesting uh, what you said about the there being a toll though from pretty much the get go does this thing make a profit uh, well um, it's always uh, t- we welcome about 230,000 visitors to the monument each year a profit is actually a good word for it because originally it was actually seen as quite a, quite a lucrative position being the, the keeper of the monument and we know that only was put in position for about 21 years originally and essentially the way that it worked is he, he had a, a certain amount of money that he had to give back to the city I think it was around sort of £50 pounds. anything on top of that was pure profit so it was actually seen as being quite a, um, for, for, for a canny businessman, it was a good opportunity, the monument, to, uh, to make a bit of dosh. It must still do all right, then. It still does. I mean, we're still, we're still incredibly popular. As I say, um, you know, we've got over, over 230,000 visitors uh, a year. And it's, uh, you know, for, for, for central London, quite a well, well-priced place to visit as well. Um, for any Londoner, though, it's a bit of a rite of passage coming to visit the monument. So. Well... Uh, are we going to bypass the queue, or are we, are we elbowing our way past, think, or are we persuading know, I, I our way past? We will, uh, I think we will we'll persuade our way past. Right. We will shimmy past. We're, we're quite tight on the way up, so we will, uh, we'll single file it, I think. All right, we're going to do it. We're going to record on the way up. There are some electrics. You can probably hear a bit of buzzing in the background of the recording, listener. Um, there are some electrics uh, possibly running up the monument, I don't know, so we might be accompanied by a mosquito-like wine. Sorry about that. It's all right. I'll, I will start the uh, the stopwatch as soon as we get through the door. And we get, what's the plan with the mouse bar then? How do you want to do this? I reckon well, what we can do. Um, I've got my hands full, so you're going to have to reach back and force feed me at, at, at several step intervals. It's absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. I can do that. I have one in each hand. Um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll go. We'll eat it as we go up and see how we go. Uh, after you. So our journey begins. Are we nearly there yet? So I reckon we're uh, we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> there may be some good spots for a break as we go up. So oh, okay. Maybe... I'm trusting you on that. Thank you, listener. If you are anything larger than a hobbit and you'd like a, a really exciting staircase experience, I urge you to go to uh, the Clifton Suspension Bridge, and there are a couple of little spots down there through the cliffside where you can climb down incredibly small, almost potholes, through the top of the cliff and into the side of it to look out onto the gorge there. But don't rely on getting back out again. Well, I'm exhausted. Yeah. How far up are we? I think we're getting there now. I think we're getting there now. But... I can feel my, all of my leg muscles seizing up. You go on without me. Do we need to start eating the dogs? Possibly, possibly. We could have a quick break if that, if that would help. Oh, yeah. I think we should. Oh, we're a, we're a long way up. 
I'm looking down the central spiral here. That's a great picture. See, definitely, the, the trick with climbing the monument is always look down and never look up at what's still got to come. Well, you know what I'm going to do now. Then. <laughs> oh, what? Goodness me. Well, that's a completely deceptive as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But I thought as we make our way up, actually, is a, a, a slight tale of tenacity. Uh, we've already talked about one um, with our, our nimble-footed man making his way up to the top. We've just come past Mandy, who's, who's one of my colleagues, who is a, one of the keepers of the monument now, who looks after the monument on a day-to-day basis. Now, a story that took place uh, in the early 1910s was of two suffragettes who actually occupied the monument 10 o'clock in the morning, they managed to lock the attendant in the office, made their way up to the top, they then managed to throw propaganda leaflets off the side, and they unfurled a banner down to the bottom of the monument that read, Death or Glory. And what's really nice about that story is, not only did you have hundreds of men gathering to protest against this, uh, this demonstration of women's suffrage, but um, you also still see how the monument was still crucial in the thinking and the symbolism of the City of London at the day. Mm. But um, I'm losing my breath seeing that story. Let's keep climbing up, I think. Seems to me like Freud would have a field day there. Absolutely. Fantastic. I'm going to peek out of one of the slit windows. I mean, they're designed to look like arrow slits, aren't they? And I suppose, at a push, they probably could serve a decent defensive purpose. Well, what you do find, with, um, especially with, with the earlier design, is um, you actually had these small slits where, where bronze flames were going to come out of. So I've always just wondered if they were maybe incorporated from the original design. Huh. But again, one of, the, one, of the, one of the great mysteries of the monument is that the original design doesn't exist. So it's part of the great debate over who built the thing. Was it Wren or was it Hook? Did they work together? Who built how much of it? Um, it's one of the great debates that we have because that original design just does not exist. What about the scientific instruments that you mentioned? Or the, the, the scientific purpose that you mentioned, I should say. Did the instruments ever make it in? Says a passing child. I couldn't agree more. This is well beyond the call of duty. Yeah, so How much further have we got? Let's have a look. Oh, it's never ending. Thank you. Definitely a few steps closer than we were um, two minutes ago. We'll wait and see. Um, but just, just a, a point on the, uh, the instruments there. Rather than um, a lot of instruments actually being brought in, the monument is an instrument in itself. Right at the very base, which unfortunately is now our tourist trail, is uh, an observatory. So if you look right down the centre of the staircase, all the way to the very bottom, um, there is actually an observatory down there. Um, It's covered with a stone panel now, but but this is the instrument itself, the construction itself. And as you look to the top, it would have been open to the elements, so you could see the stars and the alignment. So what does the observatory look like? How big is it? It's, it's, it's tiny, very, very small, very small. Like a one, a one man type thing. You're talking what? You're talking one man. I mean, there were stories about um, the keeper actually living in there with his family, but um, you know, we've never been able to verify that, and it is an absolutely tiny, tiny space. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, it is off the visitor route, but it is still, still visible. We've been passed by people with much stronger legs than us. Let's have a look. I reckon we're about. Uh, well, how is it possible that we've come up that far? 
I'm worried that we're going to run into the International Space Station if we keep going. The thing that makes it difficult to gauge is there being no corners to this staircase, so you can't look at how many floors you've got left. That's it. How many times have you done this mission? Do you know, I think probably about, I'd say about ten times in total. And you've, and you've worked here for how long? Uh, for about a year, for about a year. So this is once a month, not even? I reckon once every six weeks is about, is about good enough, I think. I think this will do me for another 20 years. I'm sorry, Secret London Runs, I'm now officially crippled. Right. I need to start getting clever here. I think what I'm going to do is lasso my microphone cable around the next person passing me by who's going up and hitch a lift. We've got a, a log jam. Good afternoon. How long did it take you to recover once you got to the top? Nanosecond. No, oh, okay. Good. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yes, yes, it's definitely getting narrower, which means that in order for people going up to go up, people coming down have to stop. Squeeze past. I can see daylight. Here we go, we're at the top. Okay, so we've made it. (laughs) Marvellous. We're on the roof of the city. Oh, goodness me. Beautiful. Fantastic. It's definitely a view that's changed a lot over the years anyway. But yeah, we're now, so we're now standing 311 uh, stairs at the top. We've got another, well, we go up to 365 right to the very top, but we've just got this splendid panoramic view of London. Would it be misleading if I were to say we can see Belfast from here? No, no, absolutely no, absolutely no. And very well done through its, uh, its camouflage there on the river, but uh, <laughs> not at all. I mean, we're looking at, I mean, it's incredible the view that we do get up here. You've got this lovely way that the old and the new really intermingle. Of course, in the distance, you've got Tower Bridge, um, which is built, well, 122 years ago. Just next to it, we can see City Hall. Of course, the HMS Belfast there on the river. Bringing it back to the Great Fire, though, of course, is that we actually can see almost the full spread of the fire from our position up here on the top of the monument. Oh, yes. So what we're seeing is over to the east, we can see where the uh, the Tower of London stands. Now, during that rather fateful summer of 1666, that was where the, the ammunition store was of the city. So in order to prevent the uh, the spread of the fire going towards, and, well, you can imagine what it'd be like if it hit the uh, hit the Tower of London. That is marking the point of where our fire breaks are. And looking just towards the, the Tower of London from this side, we can actually see this green tops church, which is All Hallows by the Tower, and famously where Samuel Pepys climbed to the top as the fire began to rage. Oh, yes. Possibly before or after he buried his cheese, but it's, it's, it's from that spot that he, des- he describes it as one of the most miserable sights that he's seen. But as we make our way round... So, so what are we saying about the spread of the fire, though? Is that the, the, the fire went up to there or went past that's there? That's it. So it, it, it makes its way almost as close as uh, towards the tower, but that's where the uh, the fire breaks and were brought in so that the, the fire never actually damages the tower. So that's as looking over to the east. As we sort of swing our eyes to look towards the river, and we can actually look straight on uh, St Magnus the Martyr Church. Now, there was actually a fire break already on London Bridge, and it's for that reason you find that the fire doesn't actually spread south of the river. But as we make our way round, as well we can start to see 
the very tops of the old bailey over in the distance which um, marks Pie Corner and anybody who's been up that way will have seen the golden boy of Pie Corner exactly where the uh, fire finished and it spread over to the west can you point me at the old bailey the old bailey is there's the old bailey so we can see there's a lot of construction in the yeah, area. Do you know? I think we might be slightly dwarfed by cranes at the moment for the old Bailey, but we're essentially looking just behind, just behind St Paul's. It may even be over just to where these red cranes are standing, just at the side there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, essentially you've got you've got this great snapshot of uh, of, of the the London that Wren and Hook actually constructed themselves, and of course taking centre stage is St Paul's Cathedral, completed in the early 18th century. To say it's changed in character would be an understatement, but from from up here. The sense that you get, uh, actually in the west of uh, London, in the West End of Georgian London, is almost entirely absent, I'd say. Maybe some of the, like like we were talking about, the footprint of the street, the street plan, and one or two of the near-to buildings. But for the most part, it is new construction. Absolutely, um, and again, just as we said in the last in the last twenty five years, um, it's an incredible amount of building work that's actually gone on in the city of London. You can actually look, though, as we as we well as we make our way over to the other side, we're actually looking down on Fish Street Hill, so we can see so just how narrow. I mean, this was the main approach through the city, but you're talking maybe only about ten feet across for for that street. We will be able to see as we make our way around Pudding Lane and the fact that it still retains that original uh, that original street size. So even though you have the new, it is coming up. Up through on the same grids as the uh, as the old city would have been. Well, let's head around. Excuse us, thank you. The viewing platform railing here has been bent out of shape so that we can pass by. Presumably, it's a very very narrow spot. Before they had this artful idea, you could only have gone by in single file. Absolutely. I mean, again, one thing, you, you always got to be careful when you're up here in terms of uh, getting too close to the edge. Um, I mean, well, unfortunately, one of the stories that's been associated with the monument over the years is the fact that um, more people have died falling off it than actually perished in the Great Fire, recorded they perished in the Great Fire itself, and it is for that reason that you have the mesh. How, how, how much should I ask? I mean, it's a, it's a dodgy question, given that we're standing in the exact spot, but how many people have uh, made this their last foothold? Unfortunately, six. Six, right. six, have, six have made this their final their final spot but on a slightly cheerier note about 200 years well almost exactly 200 years ago in 1814 um, there was a story came up of a, a local fishmonger who brought his pony to the top of the monument so supposedly as a bit of a publicity stunt um, he brought the pony Presumably to the base by carrying him there's no way the pony's getting up the staircase the pony marched up every single step <laughs> it then marched around the gallery and all the way back down to the bottom no at a trot no. not falling over once absolutely absolutely <laughs> what are they Hook would not approve of that as a scientific piece of information. Do you know what? I, would, I think he would have appreciated the, um, sort of the slightly eccentric attitude towards <laughs> it anyway. But, uh, what would, yeah. So what were his experiments aiming to achieve? What was he all about? So, I mean, ultimately, the, the, the main one was using it as a, the Zenith telescope. You know, that's the purpose of it being built. And what would the Zenith telescope have told us? So hopefully? that w- would have told us the, uh, sort of the position of the stars in the night sky, but also changes in the night sky, and also um, just clarify the fact that the, uh, that the, you know, the world is round, the stars come back round again. Uh, unfortunately the, the problem that Hook and Wren um, run into is the fact that London is a busy place 
Um, and even even by 17th century standards, there's a, a lot of traffic underneath, and the vibrations caused by the street um, made their essentially they couldn't keep the conditions the same. They couldn't keep those exact measurements we chatted about before exact. And for that reason, um, as a zenith telescope, it falls pretty dormant pretty quickly. But those other experiments, the uses of barometers to to see how how um, pressure changes at different heights. Mm. And again, you've got the you've got the perfect instrument in the staircase there. Uh, and another one was was was, was pendulum. He, he he essentially had sort of giant pendulums that he would use on the staircase just to uh, again, I suppose, motion motion experiments. Was this regarded as? I oh know it's the, the tallest. Now still is. Was it regarded as a feat of its time? Ooh, um, do you know I? I'm trying to think of the exact answer for that in a way, really. Um, I mean, the Great Fire is often compared to sort of the you know the fall of Carthage or um, the fall of Troy, and you have those sort of uh, iconic columns in those cities. I mean, you have sort of Trajan, Trajan's column over in Rome, and it to an extent was possibly compared with that on by contemporaries. But I think it, it almost sort of stands on its own, really, literally, <laughs> the monument in a way. Oh, we've got the uh, walkie-talkie, and we can see the cheese grater. And various other large objects. What, um, what is that over there? Uh, um, I'm pointing at what looks like one end of a maybe a cathedral. Two identical, very tall columns, comparable in height to what we're on at the moment. And in between them, here, yeah, there. I believe that is Saint Edward's Church. Where's where would that be? So that would be on. Where are we? So we're Fish Street Hill. I'm trying to think. Is that Cornhill possibly over there? Or, because we have St Michael's and we have St Edward's, I believe. So both Wren's, Wren's handiwork, though, so you can see sort of the similarities as you uh, as you kind of look round as well. But it could be a bit of homework, that one. I'm not entirely sure. Yes. <laughs> we, well, one of the things I love as a, as a sightseer in London, um, I think it's the Hungerford footbridge. They've got a panorama with the panorama with all the buildings marked off, mm. and one of those up here would go down a storm out of the. Do you know what it would do? I mean, one of, one of the great things is you've got you've got that iconic London structures that you can see. Um, and I believe you can even see Big Ben from up here as well. But um, as you can see with the immediate vicinity, is that the buildings are, are slowly beginning to, to build up around us. Again, a lot of people know about that protected view of uh, St Paul's Cathedral. You know, in the certain points of the city, you have to be able to see it. Sadly, to an extent, um, the monument's almost kind of lost its, its prominent position over the years. And we just, just worry that eventually it's actually going to become kind of completely completely swamped by these new structures. So I don't know, a viewing, a viewing, uh, a viewing guide would be nice, but how, how long that view will survive? We don't know. Well, it gets simpler and simpler as the years go by, presumably. That's it, that's it. You know, as long as they build some nice buildings, they'll have be, uh, some, something for people to look at. I think what you're going to have to do eventually, because, uh, for example, the Oxo Tower is suffering from the same problem, I think what you're going to have to do is team up and put one on top of the other and uh, regain height superiority. I think so, I think so. Well, it sounds like a challenge anyway. It's a challenge for the, uh, challenge for, challenge for the architects anyway. Make who can run proud, you know? Well, I suppose we should start our descent. Yeah, do you know, there's one, one last little tale actually just before we go down is uh, we're, we're on the monument, or the monument to the Great Fire of London, to give it the full title but not a lot of people know this as HMS Monument no, no, and then um, just to take you, just to really take you back, is uh, during the the monuments had a lot of different uses over its time. It's here to commemorate, it's here to uh, to celebrate. But I mean, there's been a lot of other uses for the monument. It was actually built this platform so that it could be used to set off fireworks. 
Um, and we know that this happened on a number of occasions, uh, especially for the, for, for the laying of the foundation of um, one of the new London bridges that went in in the 1830s. It's also been used as um, an aviary. There was an eagle that was kept up here for a time. Sport and fitness, you know, this is uh, still part of people's daily routine, getting up to the top and down again. Um, but I say HMS Monument. So you've got regular joggers coming up. There's here. a few people, yeah. A few people, a few people work for the City of London uh, do on occasion. Well, I say on occasion, the summer quite regular. Do make this um, kind of uh, their, their ascent to the top and down again. <laughs> Good for the fitness, anyway. But one more story just before we go down is that the um, the, the, the the building or the, the structure has had a sort of a use by the military in the two world wars. Um, it's been used for for signals, and we know that in the first world war they actually renamed it the HMS Monument. Um, so it's taken over by the navy for that purpose. <laughs> Second World War, the monument was actually closed to visitors, and there is, if you ever see, there's a fantastic image of the monument during the Blitz. Um, the whole of the city around Fish Street Hill and on Monument Street is absolutely devastated, but the monument is still almost immaculate in the centre. And once again, really the last time that London is devastated by fire, you've got Charles II in the middle of that freeze once again conducting the rebuilding. But yeah, so it was closed to closed to the public during uh, during the Second World War, um, and it was used again as a spotting point for sort of approaching enemy aircraft, essentially. Well, I feel that time has come. Absolutely, absolutely. It's been up and a... We will tie off when we get to the, the bottom safely, and we can talk about Mars bars. Absolutely. We'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll try and get down safely first to see, see, see how we go. Yeah, I don't like your lack of confidence there, <laughs> that, it's a, that it's a given. <laughs> so there is a quick way down, and there is a long way down. We'll, uh, uh-huh. we'll take the long uh-huh. way, I think. Yeah. <laughs> In respect of that, there's very strong reinforced mesh keeping us good and safe. And just really sort of joking aside in a way, when we talk about there is two ways down, um, there has been a story on, on several occasions of, uh, well, again, a little bit like the bet that happened earlier on of um, people actually using a rope to uh, make their way down to the bottom. There was a story, a story that popped on up. The, about, on the outside or the inside? Uh, very much on the outside. Very much on the outside. But um, I believe the rope has gone. So we'll take the stairs. Well, here we go. Now, I'm relieved to say that there's a little, uh, a couple more steps here and a closed off area. This will presumably double not only as access to the very top, but also a useful cupboard to keep your mop, because the last thing you'd want if you came up to clean the platform is to get to the top and realise you'd forgotten that. That's it, absolutely, absolutely. You always want to remember your keys when you're opening up and closing. Has that ever actually happened to you? Uh, never to me. <laughs> I'm just going to look down the tunnel that's formed by the spiral staircase. Well, goodness me, that is terrifying actually I'm finding myself transfixed by it and you can see people's bodies poking out at various points down as they ascend or descend well there, there are shadows at the bottom we can't make out the people it's worth it's worth actually just just while you're um, you know you're sort of mesmerised as you look down and you just get a feeling of how exact the staircase is and exact those measurements are. You can imagine right in the distance um, at the bottom just seeing sort of the glint in the hookah wren's eye. But also just as you look right to the top, you can see the covering. Oh, yes. Where at one point you would have been able to look out onto the stars. You just get a sense of that telescope that you're standing in. Marvelous. Okay, we've done it, and uh, I've lived to tell the tale. I believe I'm still alive, and I've been handed a stiff piece of card. It says, this is to certify that Lion has climbed the 311 steps of the monument. 
And you're saying this is something that's been going on for a while, this certification? Absolutely. I mean, this is, it's been going on for years. This is your, your rite of passage to say that you've officially climbed and survived your 311 steps to the top and the bottom. You're it, it, doesn't, well it doesn't say it. survived, and I'd, I'd really like that emphasised in the document. I think so, I think so. But, the, you know, the certificate, the, the, the pride in place there, I think. Yes. Really. Well, that's completely deceptive. Uh, I don't know how that works, but from the outside, it looks like a, a stub of a thing compared to the enormous distance that you can see from the top to the bottom on the inside. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, really, so the, the final word in it is Daniel Defoe described it as a candle. I'd really like to see it used for fireworks. Yeah, I mean, it's been a, been, a, been a while since it has anyway, but, you know, again, that's what it was originally constructed for, so, um, yeah, it, it hopefully can still serve the purpose at some point. And if there's any sense of irony going on in the world, then one of the fireworks would go astray. Catch light to something. Do you know, I, ca- I cannot possibly comment as a, <laughs> as a City of London employee. Oh, yeah, of course, yes. Uh, I, uh, yeah, couldn't say a word on that, I'm afraid. <laughs> I mean, it's normally at this point in the podcast, we'd say something like, for people who want to know more, but I think if people can't manage to find that out for themselves, then they're doing something wrong, really, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, um, absolutely. I mean, what, what I would say was that this being our 350th uh, year, um, so, well, 350 years since the Great Fire, is that throughout the city there is a, a whole programme of activities going on. So people do want to know more um, about the Great Fire. We have, uh, we have a number of different um, activities taking place here at the Monument, which is all on the, uh, the Monument website um, and through Visit London as well. So I would, I would definitely encourage people to, to check out what's going on um, in, this, in this summer. And what is going on? So well, I mean, uh, here at the the monument, we've got uh, we have a, a trail which is uh, our Great Fire, uh, the Monument Great Fire Trail, which um, takes about two hours to complete. Though you do have until September to complete it, which takes you on a uh, treasure hunt right across the city of London. Oh, not just up the monument. And not just up the monument, no. But it's, it takes the monument as your starting point. Right. And um, we also have a series of free talks that are taking place um, on Thursday uh, and Wednesday lunch times, twelve till two o'clock on the hour and on the half hour, and they're taking place just out here on the piazza so if anybody wants to know a little bit more about um, the area that we've been discovering yeah they, they're taking they're taking place from now right up until the great fire weekend magnificent can we finish with um, somebody who knows about the fire a nugget of information that perhaps people won't have encountered quite so frequently if at all oh wow um, oh let me have a let me have a think about that actually Supposedly, when the uh, bakery burned down, the biscuits that were being made in the bakery were for the navy. So I don't know if that's a, if that's, yeah, a, that's an interesting a, fact to to on, but it's definitely something that uh, is, is uh, sort of believed to be true anyway. That they were they were being made made for the navy or made for sailors of some description anyway. So sort of in the uh, in the hours leading up to the uh, the fire consuming the bakery and then uh, and then well most of the city of London. David Laird, thanks very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to David Laird. Thanks too to Esther Saunders, Deutsch and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.